Well, in our study of Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus calm two physical storms on the Sea of Galilee. If you'll remember, several months back, we were in Mark 4, and uh, they had to wake Jesus up. I don't know if you remember what they said, but they were screaming at him, Teacher, do you not care? We're perishing. They believed they were, in fact, drowning, and the boat was going down. Jesus stepped up and used two words, Hush, be still, and the winds were calmed, and the water went totally calm. The second storm was in chapter 6, and it was there that they were straining against the wind. Again, in a storm there, and uh, they see Jesus walking on the water, and he's going to pass them by, but they yell because they're, they're terrified that they're going down once again. Jesus steps in the boat, and the wind dies, and the sea calms. Now, the sea, we know this, and we studied this, is, is symbolic for... Uh, bad things for the for the Hebrew, the Jewish mind. It's in the sea that there's the dark mystery. That's the, the, the a bad place, so to speak, in, in, in their in their mind symbolically. Uh, and so uh, the 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 calming of those seas is symbolic of God calming the the chaos in a sense that is brought out of it. Um, Here's my question. We've watched him calm two storms, great stories. But what about the storms that Jesus doesn't calm? This is our question for today. What about the storms that rage and rage and keep going? What about the storms where the ship actually sinks and people die? quoted these lyrics from Tony Wood's song. It was a Scott Crepane song back in the day, but I quoted him when, we taught, when I taught that passage. He wrote, Sometimes he calms the storm with a whispered peace be still. He can settle any sea, but it doesn't mean he will. What do we do when he doesn't calm the storm? And some of us are riding storms right now as I'm speaking. You're either, as they say, going in one, in one, or coming out of one. What, what do we do when, when your life is in the midst of a storm? And it could be due to your choices, mine. We make bad choices. It could be due to the choices of others. It could be due to the evil intent of others. Um, it could be so many things because we live in fallen bodies and a fallen world. And because that's the case... We're not immune from marriages that fall apart, from wombs that are barren, from finances that are strained, from cancer that destroys, from relationships that go south. There is a storm brewing in our text today, and Jesus will not calm it. It's a storm the disciples don't anticipate. And it's kind of like, well, I thought you guys knew this was coming. Well, they, they didn't. Because it was so far removed from what, from what they expected and what they hoped. It was just so the opposite that it just took them, pun intended, by storm. And Jesus is at the very center of it. He does not calm it down. Why? Why, Jesus, don't you calm this storm? And I think when we answer that question and we understand this text, it helps us, it really helps us to understand how we survive the storms, y'all, quite frankly, that don't resolve, not in this life. So by way of context, um, I'm going to 
catch us up a little bit from last week. Turn in your Bibles, though, to Mark 14. Mark 14, we're in verses 43 to 52. Now, last week, Rob Sweet, he took us from Jerusalem. He took us down the Kidron Valley, and he brought us up to the Mount of Olives. And don't miss some of these geographical markers. We are now in the Mount of Olives, and we are in a garden. Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. I've said this a couple times. I'm just going to keep saying it, I think. But I want you to know, in my opinion at least, Rob Sweet, who taught last week, he's no average teacher. I mean, I'm telling you, uh, that's a gift to us as a body. And I've said before that the church, you know, it was told to me, said to me many years ago, the church will be led by those who can teach doctrine winsomely. And I just have not come across someone who teaches it so winsomely as Rob, where you take the hard truths of Scripture, and it's like when you hear these hard truths, rather than resist them, it's like, I want that. The Spirit uses such a way that I want to receive that, and he's that kind of teacher and leader. Now, uh, Rob started off, and he reminded us that research has verified what the Bible has shown us all along, and that is we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Uh, we are all self-deceived. You remember that where we, you know, we, when we think of the positive things in life, we kind of say, you know, if this is average, we kind of put ourselves above average on the positive. And if you take the bad things in a character or life, we kind of go, well, I, I don't tend to have the bad ones, <laughs> but I tend to have more of the good ones than everyone else. We are self-deceived. And what we saw in the text, and I'm going to tell you, this continues right into our text today, is that here are these disciples. Been with Jesus for three and a half years, and y'all, they remain self-deceived. And of course, Peter's the first one, right, to kind of, kind of have his overinflated estimation come out when he said, you know, I'm not going to deny you. You know, everyone else may. And then he doubles down. I'm going to double down. I'll die before I would deny you. And, of course, the rest follow suit. And it's, the text says, and they all repeated what Peter had said. And now the storm appears on the horizon. And I'm telling you guys, their self-deception is exposed. And I think I want to remind us, it's not just about theirs. You know what? Our self-deception can be exposed as well. So we're going to take the text in three parts. Let me tell you the three sections we'll look at. It's 43 to 52, and I've just, ta- I've just taken a word out of each little section, and I'm using it as an outline. So we're going to start with the kiss, and then we are going to go to the sword, and then we're going to end with the Scripture. So the kiss, the sword, the Scripture. That's how we'll move through this. The kiss is verses 43 to 46. Follow along in your Bibles as I read it. And I'm going to pick up 42 because understand uh, there's, they've been praying in the garden, or I should say this, one of them's been praying in the garden, three of them have been sleeping. And so now Jesus says this in 42, get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand, 43. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs. Who were, the, who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, we know these, the, this group, these groups of religious leaders, all the way back in chapter 3, they've been plotting to destroy Jesus. They're not new to us. Now, he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him. And seized him, the kiss. Now, we might wonder why, uh, why it required a kiss or a signal like that to, to take Jesus. And by the way, this is where the term originates, the kiss of death. 
You know, we refer to this, they, you know, everyone refers back to this kiss from Judas. Now, it, it's one of those things where at least I read it and, and, and in my mind I go, it would be like someone telling, you know, me like telling someone, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shake Brad Taylor's hand so you guys know who he is. Or, you know, and, and I would say, uh, I, I know, you know, someone said, that, someone said they're going to shake Brad Taylor's hand so I would know Brad. But I would go, well, I know Brad. I, I know what Brad looks like. No need to shake his hand. I can pick him out of a crowd. I mean, he, I've known him for years. We're in small group together for years, et cetera, et cetera. That's how you kind of view this. And I want us to think uh, uh, in, at two levels. One is this. You know, Jesus is going to say it's going to happen because this is what the Scripture said would happen. So that's, quite frankly, the most important. But also on a pragmatic level, um, we're going to see Jesus say, you guys could have arrested me at any time. I mean, Jesus is a big-time public figure. And in the broad daylight, he's teaching in the temple. Everyone knows him. They've seen him. They know what he looks like. But they are afraid of the crowds. And so because they don't want to do something to Jesus, who's the populist figure, you know, so to speak, with the crowds, they love him. They want to grab this guy and arrest him in front of everyone because then the crowds might get mad and attack them, right? So they decide, look, we're going to get him, but we need to get him not in broad daylight, but when? When do they want to get him? At night, you see. Guess when those two storms happened previously in our story? They happened at night. It's all at night. It's all under the dark cover of darkness, you see. And, this sounds a little funny, but it's a fact. You tell me, under the cover of darkness, even with the light of the moon, and these poor, lamp, you know, these poor uh, torches that they might be carrying, how difficult would it be for you to identify the bearded guy in the white tunic from the bearded guy in the white tunic and the bearded guy in the white tunic and the bearded guy in the white tunic. You see, they, they could mistake it. And so J Judas is going to identify him with this kiss. Now, every gospel account contains the betrayal and arrest. You know, every gospel account doesn't even contain his birth. But every one of them contain the betrayal and arrest, amazing. And every one of the other accounts adds a detail from that author's perspective that helps us take in the whole. And I'm going to grab just two of these for us. And I want to grab one now because under this question, what do we do? With, what do we do in God in the storms that God doesn't resolve, that God doesn't calm? There's some some real key things we need to grab. And understand this will be one of them. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. You're going to go to the right. And you're going to go to John 18. John 18, and we're going to begin in verse 4. This is the same account, John's record of it. And John writes this, pay attention to these words. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he asked again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. He, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Now, I don't want you to miss a couple of phrases in here. The first one would be this. Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming on him. So, so Jesus is the one who initiates 
the conversation, you know, what do you want? Jesus is one who stands up and says they're coming. Jesus knows all. He knows all that's happening, all that's coming before him. He knows there are no surprises. And then three times in this interaction, Jesus identifies himself with the Greek words ego ami. Now, in, in our text, it says, I am he, but the literal Greek, there's no he in that. And so when they say, we're looking for Jesus, Jesus simply says this, ego ami. In other words, I am. I am. I am. He does it three times. Now, what this ought to do is send us back in terms of Scripture to Moses, when Moses went to Pharaoh, and he was going to, God said, go to Pharaoh because I'm going to get my people out of Egypt. And Moses said, God, who am I going to say sends me? God, what's your name? And God looked at Moses and said, my name is, you tell me, I am. And when Jesus says, I am, this is I'm God, you see, in the flesh. And in that moment now, that first, when he first said it, they, it says they fell back. I, I don't know what that looked like. It's like, I don't know, a sound wave, something. Just It put them on the ground when he s- simply said the words. You know, a lot of us don't get up here on the front row. Um, but, you know, if I'm teaching, I'm going to be sitting on the front row for four services. And, uh, you know, not this morning by any means, but I'm just going to tell you there's some mornings when my jacket moves from the base that's coming out of this thing, Dennis <laughs> looking at me going, "Yeah, you know." But you know, it's just, you can you can feel it on your, your your body. This invisible force you can feel on your body. And there's something when Jesus said that there was there was a movement of God that put them down. They had to get back up. Now, now the people on the back row, because there's a crowd. And by the way, there could be. There could be hundreds in this group. We don't know how many, but it's not like eight or nine. There there could be hundreds in this group. So those in the back could just think, hey, somebody up front fell down and we all knocked over. But I want to tell you, if you're on the front and you go down, you know something has just happened. And Judas, by the way, is on that front row. And I think I want to take this particular um, section of John and ask us this question. When we see, we read it and we see what happened and Jesus says, I am. And Jesus is the one who initiates the conversation. Jesus is the one who knows what's coming. I'm going to ask you this. Who is in control of the events of this storm? Who's in control? Tell me. This has happened every time I've asked that question. And I'm going, what am I missing? God's in control. It's okay. But God's in control. There's no accidents unfolding here. This is not Jesus being taken advantage of. I am. Boom, they fall down. Jesus knowing what's coming before. It's okay that you wouldn't say it as strongly as I would, but I'm hoping by the end there'll be something deep down in you that when I ask again, it would not be It would be God's in control because he is. And I'm going to tell you, it really matters. Because when you read this, honestly, from a worldly perspective, who looks like they're in control? The religious leaders, those with the arms, those with the batons, and those with the swords. That who looks like, that who it looks like is in control, not. God is in control. Back to, back to Mark 14, so we stay there, let's get through this. 
Judas comes and gives him a kiss, the kiss of death. The term kiss in verse 44 is phileo. Phileo is the Greek word. Now, when he goes in verse 45 and it says Judas kissed him, uh, it changes. And it's actually Judas kata phileo. So they put the intensive kata before the phileo. So normally it's, a, you know, but kata phileo is the intense form of kiss. And so that Judas, when he came, uh, Judas came and, and, and it's not just rabbi and hugged him quickly. It's rabbi held him. This is the one. Take him and seize him and it's a dark moment, honestly, in human history. And, and I'll just ask this question, because I think this rumbles in our own minds, is how, how can a man be with Jesus for three and a half years, hear Jesus, sleep with Jesus, be with Jesus, walk with Jesus, uh, watch him do miracles, do all that he did, and in, a, in that moment, just give the kiss of death to the Savior? How does that happen? How does a man live with the other 11 and the other 11 not know? This guy's duplicitous. How, how does that happen? I was going to let you think about that. Here's the bigger question. Can it happen today? Can it happen in this room? Seriously. Yes. Absolutely. It's always happening. When I look at you and catch your eyes, don't think I'm thinking of you. <laughs> Jerry. No, uh, uh, no, I'm not. I'm just saying that when that it's possible, it's just absolutely possible for someone to say all the right things and literally men and women do all the right. It, it really is and do all the right things. And it's possible for a person like me to preach the word. It's possible for a person like you to serve in the learning center, go on a mission trip and tell others about Jesus and you know, say the lingo and be in a small group. It's possible to do all of that and miss Jesus. It absolutely is. And let's just be honest. It's a lot easier to do that in Nashville than it is Seattle. It really is here. And I'm going to tell you, as a community of faith, this is why you would hear all of us as we teach to say, uh, listen, when you hear the Bible taught and you hear spiritual truth that's accurately taught and you don't trust it, you don't believe it, you don't rest in it. Let's start with the fundamental. There's no passing go on this one. Jesus Christ died the death you deserved was buried and rose again, and he died in your place. And if you hear that, but you, there's never a time when you trust, you believe it, and you put your confidence in it. You don't know Christ. I don't care how much you know the Bible. And then let's just go on and, and talk about, you could be here for three years, and we teach through the Gospel of Mark, and you go, boy, those are some great lessons. Those are some wonderful spiritual truths. I, there's some stuff that's really good in there, but you never trust it yourself. What you are doing, according to Scripture, is you are callousing, callousing, callousing your heart such that every new truth that comes just puts another layer of, layer of callous. So you're hardened your heart, and in this way, if we don't trust you all, what God says, being in church is one of the most dangerous places you can be. 
Now, I'm not talking to anyone who's here who doesn't know Christ and you're, you're just learning. You're just trying to investigate, is this true? That's good. But if you go for a lifetime and you've never personally and you don't personally trust the truths that God gives us, then you put yourself in grave danger. This is very sober warning for me and for all of us. Okay, that's the kiss. How about the sword? Verse 47, just one verse I'm taking. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, do we need to be told who that is? Anybody got any guesses who might be the impetuous one who'd grab that? Of course, John tells us it's Peter, and he swipes off Malchus's ear. With the word sword in this context, and these, these verses, it's, it's, the, it's the word for a dagger. It's not William Wallace, you know. He wasn't welding one at him, you know. It was a dagger, but it's lethal because they would use this in hand-to-hand. And absolutely, you could drive it into someone's heart, or you could slit their neck. Take a guess. What, what do you think Peter was going for? I really believe this. I believe, he was going for the, I believe he was going to kill the guy. The guy moved. We don't know. And bam, he caught his ear and whacked it off. Jesus, of course, um, heals the man uh, even in that moment. Um, I, I, want, I, I want us to, to grab another section that kind of unfolds this little event a little bit more. And it's going to give us, I think, some more in terms of what do we do when the storms of life don't resolve. Obviously, Peter was trying to... Peter was trying to resolve this storm, wasn't he? Look at what Jesus says. Go to Matthew 26. Okay, so you're going to go left this time. We're going to go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. I'm going to start in verse 52. Of course, Jesus, so Peter picks up the dagger, whacks away, cuts the ear off. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. And then this. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more, more than than 12 legions of angels? How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? Put the sword away because the Scriptures say it must happen this way, not that way. And this is pretty amazing to me that Jesus says what he does. In 2 Kings 9, there's a story told about a battle with the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, you all, are the worst of the worst of the worst. This is the Hebrew people's just despicable enemies. And they're a despicable people, quite frankly. Dark, 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 barbaric, brutal in in ways we can't even fathom. And uh, it says in, in 2 Kings 9 that, In one night, God sent one angel, and the one angel killed 85,000 Assyrians. One angel. And Jesus says here, put away the sword. Do you not understand that if I asked my father, he would put at my disposal more than 72,000 angels? Now, when you you go, whoo! I don't care if there were a thousand soldiers, 72,000 angels that, that, Jesus, that Jesus could call that, and boom, I mean, this thing would be over, right? It over in a blink of an eye. And I want to ask you another question. I said this earlier, you know, in light of Jesus 
take, as he takes the initiative, as he, as he speaks and they fall back. And, 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 and I think we're, what we get in this is that, you know what, God's in control. Let me ask the question in light of what Jesus just said about this. Who holds the power in the garden? Is it the guys with the swords and the clubs and the lance and the religious authorities and the Roman soldiers? Who holds the power in the garden? You tell me. That's a little better. We're not quite there, but um, honestly, God holds the power. I mean, he's in control of this craziness, and he's all-powerful in the midst of this craziness. That's why he can be in control, because of who he is, you see. Now, the disciples, again, you know, I'm not throwing them under, they, not, they don't see this at this time, but I'm going to tell you something. Um, when the real storms of life hit you and me, and they do, and they are, it really matters that we know who's in control and who's all powerful. Okay, back to Mark 14. Let me say one word about Peter. Alistair Begg made a comment about Peter that I've kind of taken off on and and adapted, but it was his insight that helped me in this way. Uh, Peter, of course, um, he's made a promise that he can't keep, right? And guys, we do that, don't we? Sometimes we do. We say we're going to do something and we can't keep the promise. But here's what we do know. Um, Peter feels out of control. I mean, he, obviously, he, he feels like this is not going the way I want it to go. And so he, he takes matters into his own hands. And so we could say this. I, I'm going to suggest that Peter, Peter feels out of control. And Peter doesn't yet know who's in control. So I'm out of control. I don't know who's in control. And when we feel that, what do we do? I, I'm out of control. I don't even know if anybody's in control. And so we take control. And Peter grabs the dagger, and Beg makes this comment, when we, feel out of con- when we feel out of control, don't know who's in control, we grab the wrong weapon. He grabbed the wrong weapon. And, he, and, and with the wrong weapon, he actually did more damage than good. And we do the same thing, and I'll bring it into our own vernacular maybe, when we feel out of control, we grab the wrong weapon weapon. I don't know what we do. We may grab some people to get control of this. We may grab our calendar. We may grab our checkbook. We're going to this, get this buckled down, etc. We may grab our kids and I don't know, you know, you got to straighten up. We may grab for the pills. We may grab the internet. We may grab the credit card. We may grab, I don't know, any number of things. I'm out of control, but I'm going to grab something. And nothing holds. I don't care what you grab, what I grab. Nothing holds. In the midst of this storm. And then Beg makes this point. That our battle is not against flesh and blood. And we know this from our scripture. And so Peter is watching flesh and blood tear up his dreams and destroy his Messiah. And he goes to battle with them. But our battle is not with flesh and blood. (laughs) It's against spiritual powers and principalities in dark places. Spiritual battle. Physical things will do no good in spiritual battle. And the fact is... Our primary weapons in the battle are the Word of God and prayer. I, I can't give you anything else because nothing else really matters. 
These are the weapons. The Word of God and prayer. Is it any accident that this whole storm is preceded by, what did we look at, prayer? Only one was praying, though, and the other three were not. And one is calm in the storm, and the other three are what? Scrambling. You know, Rob said this last week, uh, neediness is not a design flaw. In other words, incapacity uh, is not weakness. That, that our weakness is, in fact, our great... This is, this is the spiritual life, man. Everything's turned upside down. Our weakness is our greatest strength. For when I can't, when I'm unable, when I'm incapable, oh, God is able and capable and strong. This is the Christian life. You know, I said this last service, and I don't have it in my notes, but it just dawned on me, and I, I, I could be wrong, and so now I'll have to go correct the video one day maybe. But being out of control is not a part of our fallen condition. Now, think about it, because I, I was standing up here literally thinking this, and I went, okay, because Adam and Eve, before the fall, were they in control? You tell me. Were Adam and Eve in control of the world and their lives and everything before the fall? No. So, so, so enough, you know what I'm saying? Being out of control as a human being is not a part of our falling condition. It's, can I say this? It's actually about our being in the image of God such that out of control means we would live dependent on the one who is. But we fight it, don't we? Isn't it amazing how we fight that? And yet, we're made, we weren't made to be in control. We were made to be dependent upon a God who is. Okay, the kiss, the sword. Let's look at the scripture. Matthew, this will, or this will be uh, verses 48 to 52. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. Boy, that's a deep, lonely statement. Verse 51. A young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped unhurt. Matthew records the very same words. I just want to reiterate this. Matthew records, How then will the scripture be fulfilled? which say that, that it must happen this way. That's Jesus speaking in Matthew. And then he concludes, just like Mark does here, Matthew reaffirms that Jesus says, but all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. So all of this, let's stay in our, all of this has taken place exactly as the prophets said it would. Zechariah said that the shepherd would be crushed and then the, the sheep would scatter and it's the very verse that Jesus cited in verse 27 uh, of our same chapter when he was speaking to the disciples they didn't realize they were the sheep back in chapter 8 verse 31 that's when Jesus it says began to tell the disciples right after Peter said you're the Messiah Jesus said got it now let me tell you something I'm going to Jerusalem I'm going to suffer and die and rise three days later and then in chapter 9, verse 31, he gets them together again and says, Guys, guys, let me have everybody huddle up. Let me tell you something. We're going to Jerusalem. I'll be beaten. I'll be seized by the Gentiles, and they're going to kill me, but I'm going to rise three days later. 
And then chapter 10, verse 33, he gets them together again. Guys, can I tell you something? We're going to Jerusalem, and this is exactly what's going to happen. They're going to seize me. Uh, I'm going to be beaten. Uh, I'm going to die. But three days later, I'm going to rise again. And then when they were in the upper room, he looked at them and said, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. In other words, Jesus has said what's going to happen. And men and women, when Jesus says what's going to happen, it's going to happen. And when you read in your Bible, it is written. Every time it says it is written, just go ahead and write in your Bible on the top of it. Done, done, done. Maybe not yet, but it's done. If it's written, it's done. It will be. What seems out of control, this arrest, and I've got to assume, maybe, maybe not assume is the right word, but I imagine that it was a pretty chaotic garden uh, in that hundreds of people probably in there, and then the disciples running every which way, I guess, in the darkness. Uh, how about the naked guy running through the crowd, you know? Um, there's confusion and chaos. There's faithlessness and there's faith. But it's all taking place. To fulfill the scripture. How about that? Who's in control? Who has the power in this garden? Yeah. You sort of believe it, maybe. Verses 51 and 52 have created a lot of craziness. Here's the only thing we can say for sure. We don't know for sure. who this person is. Uh, Some say it's Mark, and it could be Mark. How about that? How about Mark slipping in a little himself in there? Because it could fit him that he took a sheet, you know, at a house nearby. But we don't know who it is. Here's what I think about those two verses. Verse 50 says, And they all left him and fled. And then verses 51 and 52 describe an unknown guy who would rather run naked in the crowd. And by the way, to be naked is, is shame. I mean, who would rather run in naked shame than stand with the Savior? All fled and left him, including this guy, because this is how alone Jesus now is. What we are watching unfold, you all, is not a tragedy. This is so important. Let's stay in the context and think biblically, theologically. It's not the bad guys beating the good guy. It's not the hero going down to the, to the dark forces. May I say it this way? This is the story of God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This, what we're reading, is the story of God who demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, the disciples, everybody in that garden, he dies for us. This is the story of God demonstrating that he keeps his promises. Really? Yes, This is the promise all the way back in Genesis 3 when in the fall, God says, one day I will send a man child, a male will be born of a woman and he will crush the serpent's head and will make a way for a fallen humanity to be back in relationship with a holy God. This 
is that story. And this is the only way that you and I can be saved from the wrath of God. This is the story of God keeping his word. Look at verse 27 again. This was last week. But Jesus said to them, You will fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Who strikes down the shepherd? Who strikes down the shepherd? God strikes down the shepherd. Is that, oh my, God the Father Isaiah said, was pleased to crush the son. This is not Satan winning. This is not the religious leaders getting their way. This is God's ordained plan to make a way for me and you to get back to God. And Jesus, you see, you know why he's all alone? Because he's the only one. He's the only one who lived a perfect life who could die the death that would satisfy the eternal wrath of God and therefore would rise again from the grave. That's why he's alone. I mean, we hate it, but that's why he's alone. No one else can do what he's getting ready to do. God crushed the sun so that you and I wouldn't have to be crushed by the penalty of sin. This is amazing grace that we read. God's in control. He's all powerful. And let me add this. Because what he's doing is because he loves us and wants to make and will make a way for us to be back with him. Can we all agree that he's good? I mean, can he's good. So he's in control, he's all-powerful, and I say it this way, he's wholly good, W-H-O-L-Y. He's absolutely, completely good. And this is where our lesson is in the storms of life that do not resolve. How do we keep going when hope's unraveling? Well, this is, this is so simple. We prayerfully rest in the promises of God. And I know, I know you were hoping for a bigger punchline, maybe. Uh, they don't get any bigger than that. that. That's the Christian life. We prayerfully rest in the promises of God. And I know you, here's what I'd say. I know you know that. Because you know what? I know that. Doggone it, I have trouble living that. I know it, but it's tough to, it's tough to, to live it and, and, and experience it in my storm. You know, I'm right with you. Notice verse 28. says, but after, Jesus said to them, but after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Just go ahead and write over that, done, D-O-N-E. Why do I say that? Because Jesus said it. It, it, it will be. I mean, we could have said, it is written. Uh, Jesus said, I'll, I'll meet you ahead in Galilee. Now, think about this. Jesus said before he's getting ready to go through this hell, literally, before he's going through it and before they desert him, their, their faith falters and all this mess, before the, the, the awful storm that he's not going to resolve, he tells them, I will meet you in Galilee. That means Jesus is saying, look, 
whatever is going to happen here, and by the way, is there anything more permanently ending than death? No, and Jesus goes, death's no problem for me. I, I'm going to die, but I'm going to meet you in Galilee. And, and he, don't forget, I'm going to meet you. You, Peter, who, who you're going to deny me three times, but I'm going to meet you. you you're going to be there because I am going to bring you through that, you see. Now, they couldn't, they weren't at this time, honestly, they didn't, you know, we've got to watch them as they go through this. They're not trusting in the promise of God right here. I'm not throwing them under the bus. I'm going, me neither. I couldn't do it either. And actually, that's part of the point. One last verse to look at, and we need to conclude. 38, keep watching and praying. This is what they said in the, he said to the garden, that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I go there because of that word temptation. What, what was he asking them to pray for? And what temptation was he saying? Pray that you don't enter into this temptation. I, I believe this. There was a garden in Eden. We're now in a garden called Gethsemane. In that garden in Eden, God said a word. You can eat from every tree except this one. And in that garden in Eden, they took the fruit that was not theirs to take. In other words, in that garden, the temptation they entered into and they fulfilled was they said, God, we don't trust what you say. That's what they did. And now in this garden, now in Gethsemane, I'm, what I'm, why I'm going there is I want you to know the same temptation that our parents, Adam and Eve, faced, that's the one these guys are facing, and it's the one you and I face every day. Will you trust my word to you? Will you rest in my word to you? Will you believe and, and abide in what I say will be? It's always the temptation, isn't it? Oh man, how do we believe that? How do we rest in that? Well, what does our text say? Before they went into this storm, Jesus said, pray. I know, but what else do I need to do? Um, he says, pray. I know, but then I got to do... Well, as far as I can tell, it's you pray. I mean, have we done that? Have I prayed? Wherein in prayer, I'm in communion with my heavenly Father, and I'm pleading, I'm begging, I'm, I'm engaging, I'm listening, I'm communing with God the Father, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the one who's in control, all-powerful and holy good. That's where I go. That's where I, that's where I need to go is to pray. And that's where I want us to end. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. And may I invite you. Let, you know, this is not something you have to wait till tomorrow to do. It's what we do all the time. Would you bow your head and let me lead us. And I'll invite you to pray. Oh God, uh, we come in this day and in this moment to this story where uh, this is a storm for the disciples that is not resolving and you are not speaking a word to calm it. But you spoke a word to them before it happened that is to be their peace. And Lord, we come today with various storms in our life and we need to hear that word of peace.
God tells us to cast all our cares upon him. And I want to invite you right now just to, to, to say to God, to name these storms that are raging in your life right now. Bring them to him and name them. Men and women, God says to you in the midst of this storm, he has spoken and said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He has in the Lord Jesus Christ made a way back into relationship with him. And if you have put your trust in Christ's life, death, and resurrection then the Spirit of God indwells you and you possess every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And there is nothing created or uncreated that can separate you from the love of God, not even this storm, not even your unfaithfulness, not even your disobedience. Because Christ has been and is our perfect obedience, our perfect faithfulness. And we're in Him. And He is all and all we need. Because God is in control, all powerful, holy, good, Paul can say, that he causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Oh Lord, the storms of life, they don't feel good and they aren't good per se. But the God who reigns and rules, whose providence governs, all his creatures and all their actions, you are good. Help us in this moment to rest in Jesus Christ, to believe. For in believing that you have done and given all in Jesus, not because of what we do or earn, but solely of grace. Believing that, oh God, it changes us. Would you deepen that change this day? In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. I want to send you out. Um, I, I started here with a quote from this Tony Wood song. Uh, Tony's one of our elders, and you guys, many of you know him. You know, when 
He wrote of this song, Sometimes He Calms a Storm. He said, Sometimes He calms the storm with a whispered, Peace be still. He can settle any sea, but it doesn't mean He will. Next verse. Sometimes He holds us close and lets the wind and waves go wild. Sometimes He calms the storm. At other times, He calms His child. How does He calm us? As we rest and abide in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. May we do so more deeply. God bless.